Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Wednesday, October 12th, 2022, and the end of week 33 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,149 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 230 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine War. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Russia continued its attack on Ukrainian energy infrastructure, but with far fewer missiles and drones, enabling air defenses to be more effective. In our assessment, the attacks will have little impact on the ongoing conflict without a dramatic increase in tempo sustained for weeks. Second, we maintain that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue. Third, We maintain our assessment that Russia is incapable of responding simultaneously to three counteroffensives in Luhansk, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Fourth, we maintain that if a Russian force of company size or larger surrenders in northern Kherson, it will create a cascade of surrendering Russian troops. Fifth, we maintain that mass surrenders could become a logistical problem for Ukraine, which could overwhelm the ongoing counteroffensive. Sixth, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, as it would require striking what the Kremlin believes is Russian soil. And to be frank, Russian forces are incapable of fighting in a conventional environment, let alone a CBRN setting. That's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Seventh, we maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are ineffective due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Eighth, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin, looming decisions from Moscow leadership, and the deteriorating kinetic warfare situation for Russian troops in Ukraine. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. Conscripts that were rushed to the Donbass have not slowed the deterioration and are not contributing to improving combat power. Let's go ahead and get some regional updates, starting, of course, with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. 
The general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, has repeatedly reported that Russian troops have shelled Pravdine for a week. There is not enough information to support that control has tipped over to Ukraine, but based on the reports, we have adjusted the line of conflict on the map and reduced the gray area around the settlement. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported a Russian platoon supported by a single tank attempted to advance on Ishenka and was unsuccessful. Based on this information, we've moved the line of conflict and coded the settlement as liberated. We also moved the line of conflict to the northern edge of Piatechatki based on Ukrainian reports. The Russian Ministry of Defense and pro-Russian sources reported fighting in the same area. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed significant thermal anomalies between Borozensk and Piatechatki, which further reinforces that there was significant fighting in this region. Some quick assessment here. Beyond trying to prevent Russian forces from establishing a strong line of defense, Ukraine is likely attempting to sever the fragile Russian ground line of communication, it's called a G-lock, it's a supply line, that runs northwest from Milova. Ukrainian aviation carried out nine airstrikes using helicopters, and ground units executed over 300 fire missions. A Russian command post in Sukhanova and an ammo depot near Dudchene were destroyed. NASA firms showed a thermal anomaly to the west of the settlement. Russian combat engineers re-established the pontoon bridge crossing at Dudyevka over the Inulets River, with a second, smaller one built parallel to the heavily damaged highway bridge. Okay, quick sidebar here. Yeah, I don't think either pontoon bridge will last very long. In fact, there is a 70% chance, which is a totally made-up number, that both pontoon bridges will have been struck by HIMARS by the time you hear this episode. Speaking of HIMARS, a HIMARS strike destroyed the dormitory of the medical college in Bereslav, which was used as a barracks by Russian forces. There were social media reports of thermite munitions being used northwest of Chornobaivka. The known line of conflict is 17 kilometers away, raising questions about why the incendiary rounds are being used so close to the airport. New photos suggested the Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson suffered additional damage from the strike on October 10th. One of the support pillars apparently sustained damage, further compromising what little structural integrity is left. The Ukrainian Air Force reported nine Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones were shot down near Mykolaiv during the overnight hours. Residents reported explosions just after midnight local time on October 12th, but there were no reports of any damage. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP, was unchanged. International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi, met with Russian President Vladimir Putin in St. Petersburg, Russia, to discuss creating a demilitarized zone around the ZNPP. According to Director Grossi, quote, the situation in the region around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and elsewhere has become increasingly dangerous, precarious, and challenging, with frequent military attacks that can also threaten nuclear safety and security. Now more than ever, during these extremely difficult times, 
a protection zone must be established around the ZNPP. End quote. It is unlikely Putin was swayed in the meeting, telling Grossi, quote, Of course, we see that today there are elements of excessive and dangerous politicization of everything related to nuclear activity. We are very much counting on the fact that with your efforts, we will be able to reduce the rhetoric in this regard and to bring this sphere of our activity and cooperation back to normal. End quote. Enerhoatam reported that the deputy general director of ZNPP, Valery Martunyuk, was kidnapped by Russian troops and is being interrogated to share personal information about employees at the power plant. Martunyuk is the senior leader at the facility after Russia kidnapped and tortured the director general. The director general was released into free Ukraine after the IAEA intervened and demanded his release. At the time of recording, Martinyuk was still in custody. Ukrainian sources reported that the capital construction department of the city of Enerhodar was destroyed in an apparent rocket attack fired by HIMARS. It was claimed that Russian forces were using the building as a command post. There was an assassination attempt on the Russian-appointed head of administration for Enerhodar, Alexander Volga, who was shot multiple times. The attack reportedly left him in critical condition. Social media reports showed thermite munitions being used against civilian areas of Nikopol. At the time of recording, there was no information on damage or casualties. Pro-Russian sources claimed the attack was in response to the shelling of the ZNPP. However, neither Director General Grossi nor President Putin mentioned attacks on the plant today, and the Russian Ministry of Defense did not report shelling at the facility either. Russia launched fresh missile attacks on energy infrastructure, striking electrical infrastructure in Pavlorod and Kamyanskya. The new attacks knocked out power to many homes, and rolling blackouts were implemented to maintain electrical service for trains, hospitals, and other critical civilian infrastructure. Engineers were already working on repairing the system at the time of recording. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. Well, artillery fire increased significantly. Russian forces shelled settlements from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola, to Orihiv, to Stepnohirsk on the east bank of the Dnipro River. We'll have more information in the war crimes and human rights segment. Ukraine destroyed six S-300 anti-aircraft missile launchers, missiles, and missile loaders near Tokmak. Ukraine has been doing suppress and destroy enemy air defense activity around Tokmak for weeks. It's believed these launchers were responsible for the ground attacks on Zaporizhia. It did not appear, however, that the right launchers were hit, with Zaporizhia Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Oleksandr Staruk reporting that the city of Zaporizhia was hit by missiles overnight. Explosions were reported at the airport in Russian-occupied Melitopol, according to the exiled mayor Ivan Fedorov. Fedorov also reported a car bombing during the overnight hours, but did not share information on who the target was. Russian mill bloggers continue to report that Ukraine is preparing a large counteroffensive and building up troops in the Orihiv region. In southwest Donetsk, 
The Donetsk People's Republic, that's the DNR, Militia Public Relations Channel, did not report any major combat today. They claimed that their forces destroyed one M777 artillery piece, two tanks, and eight units of, quote, armor and special equipment, end quote, across the Donetsk Oblast. Ukraine launched 217 fire missions into the occupied territories. The DNR did release a video showing artillery firing on Ukrainian positions in Optin. The GSAFU reported there was fighting near Krasnohorivka, which was the first time an advance was attempted in almost a month. Positional fighting continued near Pervomaiske, with no change to the line of conflict. Shelling of Marinka was reportedly intense, but there wasn't any ground fighting. In Russian-occupied Mariupol, where insurgent activity continues to increase, military checkpoints were set up across the city, according to exiled mayor Petro Andriushenko. In northeast Donetsk, the Russian Ministry of Defense, supporting the private military company or PMC Wagner Group, continues to throw significant military resources at Soledar and Bakhmut. Quick sidebar here. Why? The GSAFU reported that Russian troops near Mykolaivka were beaten back. The town is north of Solidar on the T-513 highway and almost 10 kilometers from the known line of conflict. Russian sources did not make any claims of fighting or advances in the area, which indicates this was likely a reconnaissance or sabotage squad. East and southeast of Solidar, fighting was positional and probing for weaknesses. PMC Wagner remains entirely unable to make significant progress from the Bakhmutska direction. Southeast of Bakhmut, fighting was intense, with Russian forces led by the Wagner Group making gains toward the city after bypassing Ukrainian defenses along the M3 highway. Wagner claimed to have captured Ivanrad, but there were significant questions about the authenticity of the video they shared on social media. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR 3rd Brigade, possibly supported by fresh Chechen troops, continued their attempts to advance into Mayorsk. All right, quick assessment here. One thing that is consistent about Chechen troops is that if it weren't for bad OPSEC, that's operational security, they wouldn't have any OPSEC. The video shared on social media provided enough information for easy geolocation. Having said that, Following the guidelines of ethical journalism, we do not publish exact troop locations in our situation reports, even if that information is easily found in the public domain. Let's move on to Luhansk. The pro-Russian and Russian MOD claim that Tierney and Torske were recaptured was false. A video from October 10th showed Ukrainian troops in Torske interacting with civilians, which would be really unlikely if it were under Russian control. The GSAFU reported that Torske, Yampolivka, Makayivka, and Kovalivka were shelled. Artillery attacks on these settlements further reinforced Ukraine's presence east of the Zhidobets River. What's peculiar about the Russian MOD's claim? The Kremlin reported Ukraine attacked Novovodyane and Reichorodka. Both are located east of the Zhidobets, and are on G-locks, remember, ground lines of communication or supply lines, that lead to Svatov. 
The Russian MOD reports indicate that Ukraine is within 10 kilometers of the key logistics and supply hub. Pictures and video showed that Russian troops were building a complex of static defenses around Svatov. The work included digging linear trenches and adding Chech hedgehogs. Okay, assessment time. We don't know how effective these defenses will be. Military history has repeatedly shown that static defenses are ineffective against maneuver warfare. The linear trenches will be a liability for light infantry. Military planners gave up on straight trench design in the opening months of World War I. That's over a hundred years ago. Finally, it is highly unlikely that Ukraine will attack Svatov head-on. They will likely repeat their strategy of creating a technical encirclement, avoiding urban combat, and forcing a Russian retreat to prevent capture. Russian forces turned off cellular communication and the internet in Kremina and issued a blackout order. Okay, assessment here too. Russian ERA secured communication systems depend on 3G and 4G cellular connections. Russian forces have repeatedly made the mistake of disabling cell service to enforce operational security, forcing troops to then use unsecured radios. Serhii Khaidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that hospitals are overwhelmed with wounded Russian soldiers in the occupied territories. Leaders of the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, made a request to the Kremlin for additional physicians and medical personnel from the central and eastern military districts of Russia. Haidai also reported a Russian Su-25 ground attack aircraft was shot down. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. In the Kharkiv region, pro-Russian sources claimed that Ukrainian troops were attempting to liberate Pershotravnieve and Orlyanske. We can't confirm the veracity of the report, but Ukrainian and Russian sources reported fighting east of Kupyansk in various locations. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhvitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Romadas of Bilopilia, Snobnovhorodsk, Seredina Buda, Velika Pisarivka, Yunakivka, Shalekhin, and Esmen were hit by mortars, artillery, rockets fired by MLRS, airstrikes, and thermite fired from across the international border. Over 200 strikes were reported. Homes and businesses were destroyed. Power was knocked out in Seredina Buda, but no injuries were reported. The GSAFU reported the villages of Senkivka, Timonovici, and Janzulivka in Cherniev were shelled by Russian forces firing from across the international border. In the Kiev region, Russian missiles or Shahed-136 drones targeted the CHPP-6 thermal power plant and the hydroelectric dam north of Kiev. Satellite images showed fires at both locations. In western and central Ukraine, Russia continued to target Ukrainian electrical infrastructure. Cruise missiles hit two electrical substations in Lviv, knocking out power over a wide area just hours after it had been restored from the attacks the day before. 
Maxim Kozitsky, Lviv Oblast administrative and military governor, said four substations had been repeatedly attacked in the last 48 hours, with two completely destroyed. In the Venetia Oblast, the Ladajin thermal power plant was attacked by Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones. The plant has six turbine decks that generate 300 megawatts each. The attack occurred while emergency services personnel were at the plant, assessing damage from the October 10th attack. Six people were injured and taken to the hospital. Work on the plant and additional rescue efforts were suspended due to the security situation. Let's move on to the Russian front. In Shebikino, Russia, in the Bilgorod Oblast, an electrical substation exploded, knocking out power and impacting water service to the area. Russian state media agency Zvezda News reported that repairs to the Kerch Bridge would take four to six weeks, and that cranes and barges would be arriving to replace the damaged and destroyed sections. New higher-resolution satellite images show that the remaining highway section and the railroad bridge suffered more damage than initially reported. The image, taken within the first 24 hours of the explosion, shows that burning fuel poured down one of the bridge supports and fire damage extended to both rail lines. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Russia launched a second wave of missiles and drones into Ukraine from the Black Sea, aircraft, and Belarus. The number of missiles was greatly reduced. 30 missiles and 24 drones were launched, with Ukrainian air defenses intercepting 20 of the missiles and 22 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 UAVs. A quick editor's note here. The 22 drones shot down include the nine drones destroyed overnight near Mykolaiv and the 13 previously reported. Despite the efforts of Ukrainian air defenses, 30% of the nation's electrical generation capacity has been destroyed in the last 48 hours. Ukraine's energy minister, Herman Halushenko, told CNN that they were working on replacing the damaged capacity including investigating buying power from the Western European producers. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the leaders of the G7 nations and presented his, quote, peace formula for ending the ongoing war. In his address, he asked for more air defense systems for Ukraine to create a layered defense to build a, quote, air shield. He thanked the United States and Germany for providing advanced anti-aircraft weapons and asked France and Italy to provide SAMP-T anti-missile systems. During his address, Zelensky told the nation's leaders that Russia had ordered another 2,400 Shahed-136 kamikaze drones from Iran. During the G7 meeting, British Prime Minister Liz Truss formally called for an emergency meeting of NATO leaders. The Ukrainian Chief Intelligence Directorate reported that up to 40 Shahed-136 UAVs had been delivered to Belarus. In exchange, Belarus transferred 20 T-72A main battle tanks, or NBTs, and 12 boxcars full of ammunition to the Russian Federation. Four more M142 high-mobility artillery rocket systems, also known as HIMARS, have been transferred to Ukraine. Additionally, the first IRIS-T air defense system from Germany arrived in Ukraine with 24 missiles. 
Iris T is considered one of the world's most advanced air defense systems, and Ukraine is the first nation on the planet to have an active unit in its military. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg announced NATO would move ahead with the previously planned nuclear deterrent training exercise Steadfast Noon next week. In response, Russia announced it would be doing live-fire naval exercises simultaneously in the Barents Sea off the coast of NATO nation Norway. Speaking of training, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russian news outlet Important Stories reported that the Russian MOD was starting to recruit prisoners directly to join the military. Prisoners in Penal Colony 3 in Raisan and Penal Colony 4 in Stavropol Krai reported that representatives from the defense ministry were trying to enlist prisoners. Conscripts would be assigned to the Storm Battalion and offered the same clemency package that PMC Wagner provided, well, with less pay and worse equipment and no training, and almost certainly expected to rush Ukrainian positions and minefields as cannon fodder. But hey, you get out of Russian prison and you get to see the world. What a great deal. No, I'm just kidding. It's a terrible deal. Don't do it. In another sign that Russia has exhausted most of its modern military hardware, Mobics are being equipped with Soviet-era R-159M radios that were last used in the 1980s. The radios have a range of about 12 kilometers and reportedly have been used to torture prisoners by removing the battery connections and attaching them to victims. Ukrainian intelligence reported that up to a hundred Mobics currently in Luhansk who are finishing their training have refused to follow orders due to poor conditions, equipment, and lack of basic provisions. Like food. It's fine. Food is overrated. It's all going according to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minor graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. War crimes investigators are exhuming mass graves in Sviatohirsk and Liman and are making tragic discoveries. So far, 78 bodies have been recovered, with most showing signs of trauma or torture, including bullet wounds, broken skulls and ribs, and some with their hands tied. The youngest victim was a one-year-old infant buried with their family. In Sviatohirsk, Residents reported that Russian troops would randomly execute people in the streets. For example, during the occupation, a father and son were killed. The son was wounded, and when his elderly father found him, he started shouting for help. Russian soldiers came and shot the father, and the pair died. Investigators also found another Russian torture chamber, a scene repeated in many liberated communities. The Russian military would bring area residents who continued to support Ukraine to the basement of a recreation center for re-education. The mass grave sites in Lehman may contain more than 400 corpses. Another prisoner of war swap was done, with 32 Ukrainian POWs returned home and the body of an Israeli national released. Among those released are officers, sergeants, and soldiers of the armed forces of Ukraine. 
All of them were in areas of fierce fighting. Many of the released prisoners were listed as missing in action. The fallen Israeli citizen, Dimitro Fialka, had lived in Ukraine for the past two years and had married a woman in Lviv, where he lived and worked as a soccer coach. He volunteered to fight at the start of the war. Ukraine also secured the release of 37 children who had been illegally deported from the Kharkiv Oblast in August. The children had been taken from the village of Kabardinka, even though they all had parents. It was unclear how Ukraine secured the children's release or what, if anything, was given in exchange. Almost three months after the massacre at Olenivka prison, the bodies of 62 victims were released to Ukraine. The Ministry for Reintegration of the Temporarily Occupied Territories of Ukraine reported, quote, The negotiations were extremely challenging, but thanks to the hard work of the entire team of the Commissioner for Missing Persons, Ole Kutenko, we were able to recover the bodies of our soldiers, including those from the long-suffering Olenivka. End quote. In geopolitical news, Belarusian opposition leader and legitimately elected president Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya suggested that Ukraine establish formal diplomatic relations with her government in exile, saying, quote, The United Transitional Cabinet is ready to cooperate with Ukraine and establish diplomatic and political relations. We are ready to act together with Ukraine because, without a free Ukraine, there can be no free Belarus and Europe. End quote. She said the opposition platform calls for Belarus to withdraw its support for the ongoing war in Ukraine, for all Russian soldiers to leave Belarusian soil, to hold those involved with Russia's attacks on Ukraine accountable, and build an alliance with Ukraine against Russian aggression. Russia's attempt to make the United Nations General Assembly vote to condemn the annexation of four Ukrainian oblasts a secret ballot was rejected. Russian Federation United Nations Representative Vasily Nebenzia expressed his displeasure at the decision and wallowed in victimhood. Moldovan President Maya Sandu called for additional police powers to crack down on a fresh round of anti-government protests inflamed by agents in Transnistria, and likely the Russian FSB. Thousands of protesters, including some setting up tents outside parliament, have been protesting against Sandu's Western outreach and rising energy prices partly driven by Moscow. In economic news, Nissan announced the automaker was withdrawing completely from Russia. Russian Ministry of Industry and Trade said that the factory in St. Petersburg and office facilities were being nationalized. Nissan is taking a $680 million write-down as part of the withdrawal, stating that sanctions and the business environment made staying in Russia impossible. Nissan can buy back its assets within the next six years. Avtovaz will take over, providing parts, maintenance, and warranty services to existing Nissan vehicles in the Russian Federation. Natural gas prices in Europe have dropped 60% since the end of August, as worries over winter supplies faded away. Germany announced national reserves were at 94.1% of capacity and would reach 95% by the end of the week. Germany has enough natural gas stored to get through the winter season, even if the country became cut off from all available sources. 
The ruble was unchanged with an exchange rate of 64 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices continued their downward trend, with WTI falling to $89 a barrel and Brent dropping to $94. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market increased to $2.64 a gallon, or $0.70 a litre. Chicago SRW wheat futures also declined, trading at $8.94 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.